Welcome everyone to episode 13 of the iSphere. Um, we're very delighted with our with our new look. Um, we're, we're absolutely chuffed to bits, and now we can we can start uh, can start formally. We've got a bunch of stuff that we're talking about today. We're going to be talking a wee bit about the world of publishing, as you would expect. Um, you can't we can't not talk about publishing. We can't. Um, so that's that's one thing we're going to cover. And you know that we're going to be talking about various uh, shows. Uh, Lord of the Rings was mentioned uh, before we started there. And we're also going to be talking about the wonderful new book written by... Right, trigger, trigger warning, we will be talking about J.K. Rowling today. So, just sorry, in sorry, case, in, num- sorry in advance. The numbers just drop <laughs> on the few things. Sorry, sorry in advance, we're going to be talking about J.K. Rowling. Joy. Um, but no, I think uh, that, that's cool. So, Joy, what's been happening in the publishing world? You sent me a little bit about it, but I didn't I did. quite understand. I'm going to re-grab that link real quick because I need to. I can't remember the statistics now. But um, there was a tweet going around that was really, really fascinating, and it was about how the publishing it basically is constantly making a loss at the minute. So the thread is on Twitter. If anyone wants it, I will probably be toasting, toasting, posting it on my uh, Tumblr later. I've already retweeted it. And it was the, um, it's to do with the Penguin House acquisition uh, lawsuit that's going through. And they revealed that out of 58,000 trade titles published over the last year, they've most of them have sold less than a dozen copies. 58,000 books that they have put out into the world and most of them have sold less than a dozen. Like so full-on print runs and everything? Yeah. So it's 90% of the titles sell fewer than 2,000 units. And that is insane. That is absolutely bonkers to me as someone who is an indie self-pub. I literally, I have made, I've sold more copies than some New York Times bestsellers. That is insane to me because it's just the whole like... um, yeah, again, here's the tweet from the New York Times. About 98% of the books that publishers released in 2020 sold fewer than 5,000 copies. So they've sold thousands upon thousands, and they've released thousands and thousands upon books, but they're getting very few sales. And the numbers are insane. It is absolutely mind-boggling that it is so bad for the mainstream industry right now, and I have views on why that <laughs> is. But it it's just... For for just for um, posterity's sake, me as an indie author, I literally had a conversation last night with someone who is traditionally published, and they made the comment that I should try and legitimise myself by going trad pub. If I went trad pub with those numbers that they are currently projecting, I would lose about ninety nine percent of my income. Oh great. <laughs> So I, it is it is insane. It is absolutely kind of like oh yeah, legitimize yourself through trad publishing. And is there um, a standard? Why? Yeah. <laughs> and is at this point why? <laughs> and is there a standard? Like I know that it, it tends to vary, but is there like a standard print run for Penguin where they would go right um, new book? We're going to print ten thousand copies, or would it vary from author to author? It, it varies from your predicted popularity, and that is right. another part of it as well. A lot of them, they put money behind what they predict will be successful. So a lot of the time with Tradpub, you are not necessarily successful because you are good, but because the industry has put money behind you. 
so so is this, this is another industry secret that I'm, if you see a red sniper dot on thing, it's they found me but um <laughs> so is is, um, is is the is the whole end is like i mean it sounds like some of the other things that we've talked about before but it's like is the whole industry just built on sand effectively and basically there's a bunch of people who've continually backed all the wrong horses and that's why they're not selling um like yeah, it's it's more they don't back anybody new. They're not willing to take any risks. So they're backing the same people okay. who consistently sell well. And then they put some money behind newer people, but not a lot. And right. there's more money goes into the advertising and the branding than there is actual um, promotion of sales and other stuff. Like It's more um, also a case of the people at the top get more money than they really should be for the amount of work they're doing. <laughs> um it's the so I just saw Hadif's comment there. I'd love to hear Joyce's thoughts on what makes Tradbug difficult because I'm currently writing something that I want to publish somehow, but I have no idea how to even start and where to go. The best chance to go, um, yeah. Oh, you were the one that asked about how to create hype. Okay, the Tradpub is difficult for several reasons. Um, one of which, for me personally, is the lack of accessibility that comes with traditional publishing and. Just so that if there's anyone new here who's not aware, I did work in traditional publishing. I worked on the inside of the industry for a good number of years. I am very much aware of how the system works. Um, and that it was part of the reason I chose to indie self-pub, because I didn't want to be part of that rat race. Mm. <laughs> I know I have several friends who are very happy with their traditional publishing. Um, they're happy with not having to do certain levels of work that you do have to do as an indie pub. But for trad publishing... Um, I knew for myself personally I would not be able to keep to the mandatory schedules that publishers put you under because my health fluctuates um, and it's you don't have the same level of freedom and you also lose creative control and I um, I did initially shop my book around when back in the early days I did shop it around to see if anyone would be interested and the major feedback I got including from the publisher I used to work for was the disability arc needs to go, um, you need to tone down the politics, and also you need to have the love triangle be more conflicted to get people's interest. That was the, everything that they told me would have... <laughs> so basically, every, uh, yeah, I was going to say, every, everything that makes Hunger Pangs what it is, please remove it. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Please but, I mean, make it more appealable to the mainstream and my argument was, well, the mainstream is already saturated. I'm trying to do something for a neglected audience, which is myself. I but, am a ne neglected demographic in, in certain genres, in most genres, actually. But and also, yeah. their, their points don't even carry weight anymore, though, because if, like, if, if that's the numbers that are being... Like, if that's, yeah. the, if that's the numbers that they're getting, then, you know, why would you want to appeal to, you know, the mainstream, yeah, as they exactly. put it? Because you're... Yeah, like nobody's buying it. <laughs> like yeah, barely any. Like, is, like yeah. by by percentage of people who buy books, nobody's buying it. Um, yeah, exactly. And it was it. Was, I didn't really until I saw that tweet earlier. I never really had the vindication to turn around and say I have the feeling that I am doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think for a lot of trad pub people, they look at why you know, certainly for the person I was talking to last night, who shall remain nameless. Um, the their view of it was, well, you have such a good product, why wouldn't you make it mainstream? Because the mainstream doesn't want it, is the answer. Um, it's the 
it's very um you're very much aware when you are part of a minority group that you are not wanted by the mainstream this applies to being you know queer lgbt disabled or you know racism or anything like that you are made very clear that you are a novelty within the mainstream and they make you know they tell you this is probably not going to sell well well looking at the tweets that i that i've been reading out in the reports <laughs> that are coming out of the penguin thing i'm going well i just outsold most major mainstream pubs by about ten thousand copies so <laughs> yeah. why would i need to legit why am i having to legitimize myself to go through trad pub if I'm literally doing better than trad pub. And I know I'm unique. I know I have the advantage of my Tumblr audience and everything else, but uh, it just makes no sense. It makes no sense to try and say, well, trad pub is legitimate if this is the type of sales numbers that trad pub is now getting. So, so yeah. And it gets, it gets weirder when we're talking about like New York times bestsellers. Yeah. Cause like, you know, if, if the, you know, the equivalent is, you know, selling 5,000 copies is your New York Times bestseller material, like, that seems to be a big, like, <laughs> surely that should be bigger news, like, really. Well, there's... it's 5,000 copies in release week is what they aim for with New York right, Times. Okay. And the thing is, you can get most of that with good advertising because a lot of New York Times bestsellers Focus New York Times is editorial. List. It is paid for by publishers. It is not actually based on. It's not an actual popularity contest. You actually get a better idea of what is popular by looking at US Today bestseller list. Yeah. Um, which, and I'm guessing there will be people out there who just buy off the list. They like, do. You know, the yeah. New York Times bestseller list comes out and they just go right. I'm going to grab that. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are happy to be led by the editorials, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting to read what's popular in the mainstream or what is you know up and coming. And there are some people that do break into it that are wonderful. There are some people that completely come out of nowhere and they just barrel past everything. But um, I don't think people realise how much of publishing is orchestrated and how much is dictated on based on how much money publishers are willing to spend. And the fact that the publishing is increasingly becoming more and more of a monopoly is a huge problem. Um, And it's just kind of... It's really disheartening, actually. It's really, there used to be so many small independent publishers that had a good reputation that could get books out there that would become bestsellers. And now it's pretty much, you have to be one of the top five about to become top four publishers to get any traction. But at the same time, they are reporting record losses. They are reporting that out of the 50,000, you know, titles that they put out in 2020, they sold about a dozen each. That... I mean, my my mind my mind immediately goes to what a fucking waste of paper. <laughs> like it gee, is. like Jesus, that is nuts. Like how I wonder how many of like if if they're selling under twelve, I wonder what the print runs on each of them were like. You could tell that like print run is a word that I know. An industry term I know. It's yes. the only one I know. So I can now use it to my heart's content. Um but yeah, that seems pretty nuts and what is it so penguin is getting acquired is that what it is uh i think penguin and Schulster are merging, merging. into an even an even bigger conglomeration than they already are um Eesh. and it's not good it's not good um because it, it also means that it, it's less chance of diversity because the publishers have less reason to compete with each other and it's more of the same yes men circles of what do you mean we need more X, Y, Z? We we already have one person that represents this entire minority. 
Um, I just like it's interesting the feedback that you specifically got about hunger pangs, though, because like, um, it it seems to be like like dull the edges of the bits that are in like that are, um, not normally written about. So the politics yeah. and the disability arc, um, but then have the most like cliched forced romance conflict that's pretty yeah, much which is... in every other, like you know. It, it can't be polyamorous. There's got to be uh, a winner, you know. <laughs> Which is hilarious because the whole reason I started writing it was in it was a, a you know a satirical commentary. The whole purpose of Fangs came from a shit post where I was ridiculing that. Yeah. So for them to turn around and go, well, we need this to make it, you know appealing. I'm going, but there's a huge market. There's a market for people who don't want that. There's a market for people who want healthy polyamory that doesn't start out with that level of conflict. And I won't spoil it, but the entire way the trio gets together is a complete send-up of that trope. And I am really... There's going to be so many people that are angry about it (laughs) until they realise what I'm doing. Like They're actually going to be quite angry with me, I think, and then they're going to flip a page and go, oh. Uh, But it was just... I. I specifically started writing Fangs because when I worked in publishing, I, I did a lot of the romance and a lot of anything to do with bisexual romance as well. A lot of it was centered around uh, love triangles and conflict and jealousy. And none of them ever evolved into anything resembling healthy polyamory. It was always, you know, even if they, if they did dabble with that sort of, you know, relationship format, it always came down to the one true painting survives, either because one of them turns out to be a villain or because one of them dies. <laughs> and that was when I was editing in, you know, the you know, 2010s and all that, that was incredibly common and it was incredibly disheartening. It was so, you know, just you know, just absolutely heartbreaking to see so many good things pulled apart because it's well, you know, people actually want the one true painting. Well, no, some of us want the one the OT3, some of us want the OT4, some of us actually want healthy representation of different relationship formats. Hmm. And um, the fact that they're, I tried, I, I'm saying I tried to do that, I did do that. Um, the fact that then they turn because well, you need more conflict. You need this to be a certain way, otherwise it wouldn't have any appeal. It's just like, you're not listing. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting, <laughs> I'm kind of getting the feeling like of all of the TV shows and all of the books and everything that I've ever. I'm now getting this completely different view where like there's just been producers or editors being like, please up the drama, please have like really unnecessary drama in here, and that's like where you get a lot of the kind of like the shittiest plot points in like TV in particular. Like there's so many, like from from someone telling you to up the drama like obviously as a skilled author you would have went and you know actually made it plausible but i imagine that there's also a certain portion of people who go you you want drama and then they just chuck the most cliched shit together yeah um Um, there was that there was a um just thinking about it actually i I can't name it because i'm under an nda but there was a book I, I helped edit in 2013 that, um, wonderful premise for polyamory, absolutely wonderful representation. And the publisher forced changes on it that made it into a one true painting at the end for mainstream appeal. Mm. And it was heartbreaking because the author agreed to it. 
And I remember saying, you know, I I worked with them, I edited with them, and I said, you know, you don't have to do this. You could take this independent. You could actually make a story that would really resonate with people. And their response was, well, I need to make money and I need to have a career. So they're just they were just going to do what the, the publisher told them to do. And I worked for a, a you know a, a mid-sized publisher. I wasn't one of the big five, but I worked for a fairly you know well-known publisher in the UK at the time, and it. It was just really disheartening to see that happen, that the person was literally going, well, I can't afford to take that chance. Mm. And to be honest, that's another reason I just decided that I would, after I, I heard the feedback and everything else, I, I, I had this kind of out-of-body experience where I was sitting there going, I remember this. And I also remember that that book failed. I remember that the, I, the people got really excited and really happy and then the reviews were awful because it was more of the same, more of the same cliches. It sets up really well and then it just falls apart. And I I remember looking at that and I remember having the, when they were telling me the exact same thing and I thought, no, fuck you. I'm doing my yeah. own thing. I'm maintaining the integrity of what I'm trying to do. I, I you know... And also, the money they offered me to make all those changes was about a tenth of what I ended up making. Right. And they would have kept more in royalty. Like, I, my yeah. royalties would have been less as well because of what the, the deal that they offered me. And I'm really glad that I can I, I, I did what I did and I, I'm staying independent because I it's very aware to me that I cannot tell the stories I want to tell within the mainstream. Uh, the way the mainstream is at the moment. There are some people that are trying to change it. There are there are some fantastic people that are making changes to the industry, but it's not happening fast enough. And also, mm-hmm. you know, how it's so rare that, that people actually get made allowances for and that things actually go through. Um, yeah, so like there's this yeah. kind of like mass, mass industry, like just... It's almost like amalgamating all all stories into like a very one one note. It's like, a formula. It's they they figure they have figured yeah. it. You know, there is a formula for writing stories. And um, there are certain beats you need to hit for different types of genres. Like romance has its own beats. You know, crime has its own beats. You do need to hit those beats consistently. Mm-hmm. You can alter the the structure in which the beats are hit. But there's yeah. a complete resistance within the industry to alter the structure because they know, you know, if you follow X, Y, Z, you get a story at the end of it. But if you do, you know, X, Z, Y, they're going to go, oh, well, that's a little bit risky. We don't want to deal with that. doesn't matter if you're still hitting all of the beats, which to me are mm. honestly the more important parts of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, they though, still... Like, as, a, yeah. as a reader, like... Sure, like if you know if you if you read a lot you'll be able to spot the formulas like a mile off and yeah. i can imagine that leads to like obviously like books can have space for like their own twists and turns but like when you reduce it down to a formula it can get quite it can kind of pull you out of what you're it can what be you're very samey yeah yeah it can like, be very jarring to realize you're just being let you know your job as the yeah. author is to lead people down the garden path, but you have to populate it with enough interesting things that the the journey is enjoyable and not just here's a trunch, here's you know make X go to Y, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, that... it you know it it does get tiring. It gets tiring reading it, and it also gets tiring writing it. You know. Yeah, it's it's weird because like I can I can kind of see the resemblance to some stories in like video games as well, where like. Yeah. 
you know, you'll play, you'll play two of the same game, um, same story, same beats, and like really, all you're doing at this point is swapping out names for things, um, because there's nothing else really being added to the story. And I suppose, like, you know, the job as an editor is actually to obviously get rid of some of the unnecessary bits, but not remove the core, um. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame because it's probably a good uh, sideline into our next topic. Um, why why doesn't J.K. Rowling's editors just tell her to stop everything, ideally? Um, the same reason Anne Rice's editors never told her to say anything. Um, it's just, which is another person that I was lampooning last week and some people got angry at me. But as a professional, I, as a professional editor and author, I don't give a fuck. I will absolutely go after people that are behaving badly in the industry. Um, who's, who's Anne Rice? Uh, the interview with a vampire author who also did right. um, the... I've been I've been sporking the um the Sleeping Beauty uh erotica that she did um back in the the late eighties and early nineties and it's awful. It's truly awful. But um I, I can't believe I I'm sorry, I'm just stunned that you had to ask me who Anne Rice is. No, I know I, apparently ch- <laughs> chat, just having chat, an chat is equally right I'm sorry, what? Like who the hell is this? Like, uh, Anne Rice was huge. She's the reason vampires became really, really popular. Uh, she's she was you know the twilight of her day, um, right, and okay. I say that with you know uh, hesitancy because the fandom may actually come for me. But um, it's the she was also notorious in fandom spaces because she was one of the big authors that went after people writing fanfic and tried to sue them, and she got fanfic okay. archives shut down. That person you've seen me complaining fairly often on Tumblr, I'm sure. <laughs> Sorry, I'm but, looking. Um, I'm looking her up on Wikipedia right now, and she has Sleeping Beauty under the pseudonym Ian Roglor. Yes, I'm guessing that's the one that everyone's talking about in the comments. Yes, the the horrific one that is not very good. Um. Okay, and it, dare it, I ask you know, what's wrong with it? It, it It's boring. Okay, <laughs> there's, I don't even take issue with some of the pro, the more problematic things that are in it as an erotica story. Like There are things that I, as a person who worked in the industry as an erotica, I was a kink safety specialist for um, a number of years, and there are some things that if I'm editing things, it's mostly so that publishers don't get sued when people recreate them. Like it was a whole thing with Fifty Shades. People were using zip ties as a form of bondage, which don't do that. Don't please, if you are listening to this or you know watching this, please do not use zip ties as part of your sex life. Zip ties are awful. They can cut off circulation and they're very hard to get off without injuring. So don't use those. Um, but that was a huge thing after Fifty Shades of Grey because the character uses zip ties. And people were getting injured. So my job was to basically go through a lot of things and go, don't don't say this, you know, we'll change it to this, we'll do this because this is safe, this is not body safe, this will cause injury. You know, it's basically mitigating the, the publisher from getting sued. Um I'd love to I would love to see your C V and it's got kink safety specialist. <laughs> like like that is an amazing title. It depends on where <laughs> I'm applying to, it doesn't always make it on there. But um it was, I literally got, um, my training was I got to spend time with a, a dominatrix and talking to her about all of her safety stuff. And like, I did like kink safety sex courses and everything else. And um, it was quite funny to me because there were, you know, no one wanted that job in the office. Everyone was like, I don't really want it. And it was, I also specifically worked with the queer romance stuff and nobody wanted that job when it came up. I was going, I'll, I'll do it. 
you know, and it was like, okay, there you go. You can work with the weird stuff. And I'm like, cool. I get to, I get paid to go to a kink convention for the weekend to learn about rope safety. Fantastic. Living my best life. Um, to be fair, that it, actually sounds class. <laughs> like I'm not like, you know, there'll, there'll be people who are laughing about that. That sounds class. Like just, you know, use like, you know, anthropologist of the, of the king community. You know, you go in there. I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to the lecture on rope safety. Yeah, uh, like that's yeah. cool. I mean, that is I, very it was, cool. It was a scene that I was, you know, tangentially, you know, part of anyway. Like I, I, I did a lot of burlesque stuff, and I did some aerial um, stuff as well before my body gave out on me. But um, I, it was a scene that I was always interested in, and I think that's evident when you read my work. But um. <laughs> It was a really fun time in my life. I really enjoyed that. And it but it was mostly, you know, the publisher was being, you know, you know, I was basically there to avoid them from having anyone suing them because, you know, somebody injured themselves by following something that their books had said. Um this is not to say that every author is beholden to that. This is just my experience with it and it's what mm. I try to emulate going forward with my work and books that I work on. Um and the the Anne Rice stuff is terrible. It's really, there's a lot of unsafe stuff in it, but I think, you know, for some people it's, well, it's complete suspension of disbelief. It's not supposed to be realistic in the slightest. My argument for that would be, cool, you can do that, but you need to build your world so that that matters. You know, you can say, well, it's just erotica, it doesn't matter. There are fabulous erotica stories that have so much depth to them that you're going, yeah, it is just a story for enjoyment and porn and smuttiness, but that's no reason to be lazy with it. And that's fundamentally what Anne Rice did with her books, that she was just lazy. And it was it's so hard to make erotica boring. Even if it's bad, <laughs> it should at least be fun. But, it, you know, the claiming beauty stuff, I, I mostly just sit there with my head in my hands going, I'm bored. Like, I, I've never been bored reading erotica, and I'm bored of Anne Rice's. And that's my biggest complaint with it is that it's dull and repetitive and completely unsexy like nipples get referred to as nodules you know and it's oh. like and it, you know, there was also a classic line that I, I, <laughs> I like she's like she's a system in a power plant <laughs> exactly but it was the it was one comment was um, Sleeping Beauty is eyeing another um, enslaved prince which cause, by the way they're all enslaved in this weird sex cult yeah, I'm um, reading the at the moment. I've got the I've got the blurb in front of me from Wikipedia. Um, in the first chapter of the story, Beauty is awakened from her hundred years sleep by the prince, not with a kiss, but through copulation, initiating her in a satyricon-like world of sexual adventures. After stripping her naked, he takes her to his kingdom, ruled by his mother, Queen Eleanor, where Beauty is trained as a slave and a plaything. The rest of the naked slave. Dozens of them in the Queen's castle are princes and princesses sent by the royal parents from the surrounding kingdoms as tributes. <laughs> what, what sort of world is this? Very dystopian one, but you know <laughs> like, why? Uh, you know, there, there are very you know some people really enjoy that the the, the idea of you know um, they enjoy the the idea of being a sexual submissive slave. That is a very valid kink. We're not shaming anybody for having that. Um, I'm not at least. <laughs> I can shake my But um, the thing is, it's so hard to make that dynamic boring, and yet it is boring. Um, there are, you know, there is there are other books that do that sort of dynamic really well. They are not necessarily they're not done as much anymore because they are seen as problematic, um, which I think is a shame because you know 
fantasy's fantasy, you know, crack on as I say is. Um, but the problem I have with Anne Rice's stuff is that there is no effort put into any of it. Like you could, you know, you could turn and say, well, of course the, the slaves are able to withstand the massive amounts of paddling and spank. Like literally there is not a single page without paddling or spanking on it. Oh. And there's not a single mention of like, oh, the uh, the one rule is that they never draw blood. And I'm going, at this point, I'm not worried about blood. I'm worried about internal injuries. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, and, this is yeah. the thing. Surely if it's happening on every single page, then like it's not even really erotica at that point. Because like, I mean... Don't don't know about anyone else, but surely the build up matters a wee bit. You can't just like be cut like cutting that. A huge shot. part of it is tension. tension a huge part of building yeah. good erotica is tension, and there's zero tension. There's just somebody gets smacked, somebody cries, someone feels humiliated, but there's no tension behind it. Therefore, you know, it's not well written. Yeah. And a huge part of that is that after um the Queen of the Damned was written, Anne Rice was big enough that she could turn around and tell her publisher she didn't want her editor's input anymore. And they said yes. Oh dear. So nothing has been edited after that, apart from maybe a couple of proofreads for spelling and grammar. Nothing was allowed to be changed. There were no suggestions made because anything else was too much for Anne Rice's creative process to handle. And I'm sorry, but if you cannot handle that, and it is hard, it is very, very hard to take constructive criticism, um, especially when it's something you feel passionate about. But that's part of being an author. You have to be open to the fact that you know that your editors are going to turn and go, actually, this would work better if you did this. Um, and if you can't handle that, you shouldn't be in the industry. And the galling thing to me is, just going back to the industry and everything else, at the time, Anne Rice was getting offered $12,000 in advance for these books. In today's numbers, that is 63700 and something. Fucking hell. Authors can't even get that now unless they're already a big name publisher. A lot of us are still being offered 12 grand as advances. And I'm going, this Anne Rice did not deserve the money she was getting for a lot. You know, fair dudes if she sells them and she gets the royalties. But the the advances she was getting for things that she was able to turn around and say, I don't want an editor, that is insane. Mm. It is absolutely mind boggling. There should (laughs) be no one that is that egotistical that is above an editor. Reading, like, reading down and, like, so there's the claiming of Sleeping Beauty, then there's Beauty's Punishment and then there's Beauty's Release and then apparently there's another one called Beauty's Kingdom but that's got a really short blurb for some reason. But, like... That that was published later on and it was Anne Rice attempting to redeem her problematic themes. you, you You can tell by the third one, Beauty's Release, that, like, the actual quality of the story is like dipped massively. It's dipped um, and it shouldn't be possible because it's already falling off a cliff by the, you know, <laughs> yeah, the first yeah. one. Um, but it, you know, it's it's like finding out the hell has a basement. You know, it's just like <laughs> how how do you get so far down that you're beneath bedrock? But it's it, it I mean, bugs me. Like I don't I don't even care about you know. The, I I got a comment from it during the week was you know it just seems to me like you're shaming people's kinks. I am the most pro-kink, do what you want, as long as you're not hurting people, as long as it's legal, you know, whatever. I My my objection to is the fact that it's shitty and it did not deserve the acclaim it got. And um, it's the kind of, you know, it bugs me. It bugs me because I know now what the what people are up against in the industry are. And I know that the, the, the wages being offered haven't changed, you know. And it's, it's you know... You should you should not be able to ever turn around and say 
I am refusing to take constructive criticism from my publisher or from my editor. There is no, there is no one who is above that. Um, it's it's mind boggling to me that people are big enough that you know that they are popular enough that they can do that. Which also leads us into the other author we're going to talk about today and why she's able to put out the monstrosities that she does. We are gonna. I'm sorry. I'm choking like fuck over here. Jesus. I've done that thing again where I've drank water and fucked it. There we go. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, let's reel ourselves back out from the literal abyss of really (laughs) bad erotica. Um, Because it really does look like uh, editors didn't really touch anything in J.K. Rowling's new book. Like They've not touched anything for a long time of any of her stuff. But like, Um, I mean... Some of the stuff Nothing. I've seen on yeah. Twitter has been horrendous. Like, the fact that she's obviously went and written, like, a self-insert story about being hounded on Twitter for being transphobic and just generally awful um, is really quite embarrassing. Like, some of the... Like, I was I was going through it earlier in the week when we were talking about it on, um, on stream, and one of the, one of the things is that there's pages and pages and pages and pages of this book that is formatted into entirely fictional tweets that she has written herself. And it's like proper formatted like their tweets as well. And the detective in the book sits and reads them. And like, that's that's the plot. He's going through tweet after tweet and putting together threads and I can tell you, all, all of you are already fucking bored, right? <laughs> but the like, numbers dipped by ten. Just as yeah, yeah. Was like, oh my talking God, about it. Rowling. But like the basically what, um, like it's it's the laziest fucking thing, you know. Obviously, she's she's looked at some of the stuff that she receives on Twitter. All of the tweets that she writes are in that kind of like. I'm not saying that everyone's spelling and grammar on the internet's flawless, but it like. It's too, it's too misspelled. It's too like oh, yeah. the people who have tweeted at the the protagonist are you know are clumsy and dumb and they cannot type. Like you know they're spelling words like suicide wrong and you know stuff like that. And it's like you know they're swapping letters around and there's tons of there's tons of things like that. And of course, not just building out the tweets and writing all these fake tweets. She's also writing fake profiles and fake biographies. So, like one of the antag one of the antagonists in the book, um, you know, so called antagonist is someone who, um, you know, is is a spoonie, as in follows spoon theory and has a bit about spoon theory in her bio, and she's got fibromyalgia, and she's an evil person in this fucking book because she's attacking the author and. You know, it's just written in such a horrible way, and I think quite a lot of people yeah. were were <laughs> for some reason a lot of people have actually been shocked by this though. Um as if like you know <laughs> Jakey Rowling's work isn't riddled with really, really bad takes hating on it's it's really every, to me it's just it's also just she doesn't even bother to get it correct because she references uh, myalgic encephalitis locally known as chronic fatigue syndrome yeah. and she actually mislabels it as cf 
which is cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Which is another serious and debilitating illness that can kill people. But she conflated the two and used it as a form of mockery because CFS is often seen as like a you know yuppie flu. Yeah. Um, which I hate that term because it usually comes. We see massive spikes of conditions like myalgic encephalitis, CFS, um, after massive variants of uh, virus outbreaks. So. Uh, the influenza, the swine, you know, the swine flu and bird flu and everything else, you saw a massive spike in people with CFS diagnosis is after that. Because post-viral fatigue syndrome, as we are finding out from COVID, is very, very real. But unfortunately, the medical, um, you know, I, I hate using the word industry, but it is in some cases, uh, doesn't like that. You know, the CDC has railed for decades against CFS being a, a real condition. You know, it was for a very long time, it was, you know, considered on par with hysterics. Um, and they are still resisting it. We can see them still resisting it with long COVID. And Rowling actually plays into that with the whole, well, this is just cringy. These, you know, it is heavily implied in the book that people that use spoon theory and they have CFS or they have fibro or they have, you know, um, chronic pain disorders are attention seeking because but, they are not real to her. You know, it's yeah. we're compared to people that have lost limbs as if to say, you know, like, oh well, yeah, it's not like a real disability, you're not missing a limb. Um yeah. as someone with multiple genetic disabilities where my limbs are affected, my fluctuating invisible chronic illnesses are worse. Yeah. I mean Because I never know what I'm going to wake up with day to day. And um it's yeah, it, it's to very me, it just, kind it, of it's it seemed like such a weird attack though because like spoon theory is so fucking like harmless right as in like whether you actually subscribe to that like you know that theory or not it is absolutely fucking harmless and no one should get like a type for it. it's it's literally just a way of conceptualizing how much energy like tasks take right so right am i right in saying that it's yeah. like you know so it might be you know walking to the shops might take up x amount of of spoons you've got a certain amount of spoons in the day i've i've seen a similar one where it's talking about um stove tops and there's a limited gas supply so you can only heat up certain amounts you know like it's there's been so many variations of it it's like it's so fucking harmless as like a thing it's not it's not dangerous it's not pushing it just seems to be like a really obvious way of kicking down a group of people um i am surprised that she has not thrown her back out from how much she punches down like i'm genuinely surprised that she's not physically injured herself with some of the reaches that she comes through yeah um and it's just it's really disheartening to see the way people run with it on social media it's really really kind of you know you see people that take it as validation for their shittiness yeah, um I mean, like one of the things that I saw, it was maybe like a week or two ago, and it was saying, like, J.K. Rowling took a year off social media. And it's like, she, when? Was, she was writing about it. I was like, fuck it, fucking when? Like, her, like she, I think the longest she's gone recently has been a three-month stint. Um, and and that was it. And even then, she was still liking and, and retweeting stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like she's not she's not had a break at all. What the fuck? Um, but yeah, that that was another one that I just thought was like, it's funny. But on the I think it was during the the power washing stream that we had earlier in the week, we were 
we were talking about this and of course the conversation got to Harry Potter and it's like um you know we were talking about how J.K. Rowling like could have really just existed as this kind of beloved children's author right she she could have coasted on that for she, the rest she, of her she, life she could have she didn't she didn't really need to write anything after Harry Potter and of course like, I'm not going to say that she shouldn't have started writing anything else but you know as you uh, you know, as, as she, you know, tried to become a bit of a Twitter personality, as she became more transphobic, um, of course people are going to start to look at her work in a different light. Like, you know, imagine if she had just coasted off Harry Potter, it probably would have been analysed in some way, you know, the bit about, you know, obviously Dobby and the slavery and, you know, like the portrayal yeah. of goblins and all this. It would have been analysed a bit. Like, she she feels like she's being maliciously overanalyzed now after all of the books have been published you do but, not get to be a cultural phenomenon without opening yourself up to that level of criticism though i also don't think you can really espouse a bunch of right-wing stuff and avoid people reading into your previous work as well yep like it's it's one of those things that you know she like I said if if she'd if she just not said anything right and like hadn't hadn't embarked on the whole transphobia side of of things like people wouldn't have actually aggressively analyzed a lot of the the harry a lot of it would have like would have flown under the radar a lot of people yeah. wouldn't have been aware of it but i mean a lot of the yeah. a lot of the harry potter interpretation now that's come out and like this is another thing we were talking about is that like harry potter is now got a kind of time limit on it because you're gonna get like for example you know me and jessica have talked about this it's like we're not going to ban our future kids from reading Harry Potter. They can do it if you want, but we're not going to, we're not going to read it to them, you know? Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll read Terry Pratchett. We'll do, we'll do something else, you know? And I think. Tamora Pierce. Like, there's... You need to get them to read Tamora Pierce. Don't worry. My, my, my future kids who don't exist, I'll make sure that Tomorrow Pierce is on the, uh, <laughs> is on the reading list. <laughs> I'll just, you know what I'll I'll do that I'll get them to uh, I'll get you to prepare a list. Um, I can do that. I'm re- I'm I've been building one for my the minute I found out I was going to be an auntie I've been building lists of things so that I can turn around and go here is literally every other author that is better than J.K. Rowling that involves fantasy magical schools in some way. Yeah, but so, I mean, like do you know do you know what I mean though? I mean there's going to be so many people who are my age um our i say our generation i know there's a bit of a gap but you know our generation and all the we're the same generation we're just the the different ends tail ends of it yeah (laughs) it's like there's gonna be so many of them that just aren't gonna actually like bother because there's other stuff yeah um so like I'm, i'm i'm not saying that harry potter obviously doesn't have widespread appeal they're still making those fucking beast fantastic beast movies um, or they're maybe not now. I don't know, um, but like that's you know that's got a shelf life now. Um, yeah, it does. You know, and like Harry Potter won't like it. It could have it could have maybe stood the test of time for at least a good wee while. Um, I think it's really been cut down the past couple of years, at least. You know. Yeah, it's definitely made it short. And there, there was a lot of people that would have just you know. They wouldn't have analysed too closely. It would have just been a fun kids book that they remember fondly from their own childhood. It would have just become. It would have stayed part of a huge mainstream thing for a lot of people. And now there's a lot of people going. Actually, I don't want a pro-fascist authors working in my house. I don't. Um, 
and it's difficult because there, you know, I, I was I think ten, eleven when the first book came out, and there is no way to describe the actual phenomenon that it caused. And I remember fucking queuing for the books. Yeah, like on release this, night, yeah. midnight releases I, and stuff. I, I was one of them because my, I, you know, it was the Waterstones on Sucky Hall Street. Uh, they had a huge event, and my dad actually drove me there at five in the morning to get in line for a queue. I can't remember which book it was, yeah. but my parents were just so happy. I was re- like, I was always a, I, you know, I was always reading as a kid, but my parents were so happy because my friends were also reading. So I was no longer the lone weird book kid. I actually <laughs> yeah. had friends who were also reading, and it was the, you know, I, it was a really good thing for a lot of people, and it's just been trashed. Like yeah. it, it was. Oh, we, if you read it closely, you're already seeing the problematic content. You, you know, as an adult, I read it and I go, mm, "Harry Potter was a war criminal." But you know, it's that, <laughs> as, as a kid, you don't notice these things. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, her audience has grown up, and we've all gone, mm, "That wasn't as good as I remember." But you know, I think a lot of people would have been fine to let that go and just go, "Well, there's lots of problematic content that exists." I mean, Tamara yeah. Pierce has certain topics that I would now go, "Hmm." But it's also a product of its time. It's not actively hateful, however, which is yeah. what J.K. Rowling's work has become. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, I think it was one of those things like J.K. Rowling. I don't think maliciously set out to write any of Harry Potter like like that. <laughs> she was just bad. She was just, you know, it's, just it's someone like that wasn't getting the same guidance she should have been from sensitivity readers. I mean, that was a big just, thing. It's, it's also just a, like a, a general ignorance thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I find really, really interesting is how much she fucking despises her fans and people who actually read her book. Because, like, you've got fans that love the book so much they started to point out loopholes because they they were the ones that like they were the ones that did analyze it to death. And you know, mm-hmm. you had people going. I think it was in like the fourth book after the Goblet of Fire was released, and after a kid literally fucking dies. Um, there's there's no time turner from the third book in it and yeah like the retaliation to being told what happened to the time turners was the fifth book i'm gonna destroy all the fucking time turners because when they're in the ministry of magic neville hits like a shelf and all of the time turners in the world get destroyed <laughs> and it like you know i i find i find that fascinating it's like why do you have such disdain for your readers that point out your poor planning yeah, it, she's a very <laughs> reactionary author. She's also yeah. someone that reacts very strongly. And I, you know, again, I have um, RSD, which is rejection, re- rejection sensitivity disorder. Try and say that with a speech impediment um, as part of my ADHD. So I understand that there are times when, you know, if you're hearing things like, oh, there's a plot hole here and there's a plot hole there, it can feel as if, you know, it can, you know, feel like you're being told you failed, you were worthless yeah. and everything else. That's not what she was being told, but also she had the resources of huge publishers behind her. She had, why weren't the publishers putting editors and everything else? Why was no one allowed to say, actually, we can change this and make it better if we do X, Y, Z? Well, she was making enough money that no one was allowed to question her genius. But it wasn't genius. It was mediocre stuff that needed more research than a cursory glance at Wikipedia. You know? Um, and it, it bugs me that there are a lot of you know smaller authors and even you know you know a lot of you know s- new authors and everything else they're putting out so much more effort into things and they're making things you know th- as airtight as they can. But 
you know, nothing is ever going to be perfect because it's impossible to create a perfection that will never be problematic to someone or it won't arc somebody or, you know, there, there'll always be room for improvement with things, but you'll never create perfection. So to turn around and say, my stuff doesn't need edited because it earns enough money is just arrogance. It's just mm. arrogance. No, I mean, I think it's, it's, I feel like you could, you could talk about this for fucking ages, but really, I could. The, the, my, my, my biggest worry is that the, the new book's going to get hate read. I've, I've really only seen it from screenshots and the screenshots that I've seen haven't been very impressive from a, a general writing vibe. Um, it is, it, she's not progressed beyond she this is not shade to um, young adult authors but she has not progressed beyond the capability of writing for children and that is no shade there is specific skill that goes with writing for children and some authors are really well suited for it but when you are branching out into different genres and different ages you have to adjust your style and you have to you know you have to have that capability and not everyone has that capability. I do not have the capability of writing, you know, certain stories because I, I don't have the skill. I also don't have the inclination to learn it. Yeah. Um, but you cannot just continue the same style and way that you've been writing when you jump from children's books into crime. That's not how this works. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the and th- yeah. Sorry. One, no, I was just thinking it's, it's interesting that obviously she tries to do more of her adult stuff under the Robert Gilbreath name. Um, under a man's name, but, which I but, find interesting for such a strong feminist. Yeah, but I, I find I find that I find that that bit interesting, but there's also just the like it was such a marketing thing that before the first Robert Gilbreath book was published, it was announced that it was JK Rowling under a pen name. And it's like mm-hmm. at what point should she just stop using the pen name? Like what what's that doing? Like you know, is is so the JK Rowling brand, is that just Harry Potter then? Is she written anything else on probably. the JK Rowling? It's probably it's like, to do with licensing. It's probably to do with um the the way it's been trademarked and everything else. Um it's possible she trademarked her name as well and that the trademark is part of the Harry Potter franchise, because that is a thing that some people do as well. Um yeah. And, just, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just like so, why why continue using the Robert Gilbreath name when it was very, very well known that it was JK Rowling and was before she wrote Casual Vacancy under JK Rowling. Was that the one with the like the the, the very bad council house take? Thing? Yes. Yeah. It was yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing. There's never <laughs> been anything good. It's it's. it's, it's there's all, a lot like, of yeah. Like, I mean, it's funny because you can analyze Harry Potter through a kind of political lens, but it's very much J.K. Rowling's politics. And Casual Vacancy is just also J.K. Rowling's politics. And it's always mm-hmm. like there's nothing ever wrong with the actual system. It's just who's managing it, and she gets a wee bit of a tiff in that. And it's there's a really good video out there yeah. by Sean. Um, on Harry Potter specifically, and he makes that point, and this is like, because everyone's seen the 4chan uh, like green text of like mm-hmm. why Harry Potter sucks, and it's like nothing changes in the world. Uh, Harry Potter's like wants to basically become a wizard cop. Um, he wants to uphold the status quo. He never questions the like the authority of the Ministry of Magic. Um, and 
it's just funny that you can also see it in an attempt to write more ad hoc based stuff. Is that like there's nothing someone that very much believes in as you say maintaining the status quo and there's no problem with it it just depends on who's in charge and as long as it's her people that are in charge it's fine yeah and uh, there's people that are going to be in the chat going oh my you know like for some people you can say well yes it's fine as long as people like me are in charge but you know for other people that could be a fucking nightmare and for many of us to have someone like jk rowling in charge is a fucking nightmare um it's the just um yeah it's it's a weird kind of centralist nothing needs to change everything's fine we just need to moderate who is in charge and it's like well sometimes to do that you have to change the system because the system is broken and the system enables more of the same people to keep coming up which is exactly what happens in her books but it's like almost like a well yeah it works for me because you know it's almost like laziness because it lets her create more content of the same thing because the system never changes i mean she gets to regurgitate the same thing over and over and over again um but it's yeah it, it's it's an interesting one for me as someone who is very much um throwing the baby out with the bathwater followed <laughs> by the bath like that's my view of a lot of fiction is i would rather just eat everything and burn it down and start over again um so it's, it's really quite you know from an author perspective i'm kind of going a it's laziness and also b it's just not good writing Fiction should be on, you know, sometimes fiction can be comforting and that's fine, but a lot of really good fiction makes you think about things. It challenges the way you think about things. It can then also give you a little soothing pat on the head and go, that's okay. You don't have to have the revolution, but you should be thinking these thoughts. Yeah. You know? And it's it's really mind-boggling that someone can write about this huge epic fight against good and evil and they come down to... Yeah, but the system that enabled the evil to rise is still, you know, it's still a good system. We shouldn't rock the boat too much. We'll we'll keep an eye on the evil and make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's coming up with this fucking Harry Potter game that's coming out. Yes. Um, That, you know, it's going to sell well. There's there's no doubt about it. Like, unfortunately, the hype is is there because there's a lots and lots of people out there who've been desperate for like a Harry Potter RPG for fucking ages. Um, doesn't matter what the devs have said. Doesn't matter that the devs have been a wee bit right wing. Um, you know, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that's, um, sorry, I'm getting feedback that apparently we've got a <laughs> thing with fucking audio again. And it seems like I like I turn my dial like really loud, or I turn it and I suddenly completely drop off. Um, but yeah, there's like there's definitely been a lot of discussion around it. Um, the fact that you're playing a wizard that's like fighting the the goblins during a rebellion against the ministry because the ministry treats goblins like second class citizens. It's like. Nah, I don't know. I I feel I feel like it's it'll it'll no doubt sell well because everyone wants to you know pick their house and do all that stuff. I don't want to do that because I am now twenty five years old, um, and don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> um, the but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting when we're talking about how like you know writing, there's like writing that kind of challenges you a wee bit. Um, and I'm trying to think of like a TV show that's made me 
like actually think about the way like I I think like I'm trying. We were just we were talking about Lord of the Rings beforehand, uh, and yes, I am twenty five. Everyone in chat, yes, I'm twenty five. Well, how old do you fucking think I was? Um, there's so many people. I mean, to be honest, see back in like and back in twenty fifteen, people thought I was forty and on Tumblr. <laughs> I was like, damn, fucking hell. <laughs> um. Uh, Franavu, you're saying that the Harry Potter game's already coming up as a top seller on Steam. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of people will be pre-ordering it. Um, I'm, I'm just not going to hate play it. I'm not going to, like, hate watch. And this is back to what we were talking about with the, Lord, the new Lord of the Rings series. Like, there's a bunch of people hate watching the Lord of the Rings series at the moment. Um, and I think some of it will be from, like, a genuine, like, I want to critically analyse this from a should this have been made in Lord of the Rings lore perspective. But you've also got people who are just railing against, like, diversity. Oh, God, there's a woman in the cast. Jesus, we can't have that. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was not too bad, the two episodes. So I thought I was I was concerned that it was actually going to look shit. Um, from the screenshots I'd seen, I was like, oh, my God, you can see the, the line of their wigs. Like that yeah. was my big concern for a lot of it as well. It's it's not it, it is it's not terrible. Um, it's it, it's really not that bad. From the like, the first two episodes, it hasn't been atrocious. There's been a couple of things that I've kind of went a wee bit like, uh, uh, sorry, I'm just watching a cat might try and jump out the window. Ah, you fucking cunt. Right time that? to rescue Phelan. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny. It's funny for all of you because I'm hearing this five, ten seconds before all of you are seeing um, what is happening. So I'm trying not to react to obviously to I jumping off screen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was. I saw him do it. He was, he was standing up. I had my window slightly open, and he. <laughs> He fucking decided to jump for it. Um, the little bastard. It's all good. We're fine. I had to wrestle my cat away from the window. It's like, what do you want out there? There's nothing. Um, it's all good. Um, the accents really put you off. I'm guessing we're still talking about Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a, I took. There's this weird pivot that's happened, and I know that it probably stems from Gimli, but they're, they're trying all to make all the dwarves are Scottish. All yeah. the dwarves are Scottish now, and that never used to be the thing. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mind it being the thing, but it's like all the dwarves are Scottish, and you can very much hear when the accent goes and when they're struggling, and it's yeah. like. It's, it's not it's not good it's like the like the 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 cast are admirable they like they try but like why why do it's you only, ne- it, it, yeah it's not diversity if you're putting people into stereotypical stereotypical boxes for certain things and there's a lot of stereotyping that is happening with the association with the accents yeah, um, and that's not okay. 
Yeah, one of the things that I thought was uh, was quite interesting. So there's the there's a there's a race that are the they're like the Harfoots or something like that, and they are the ancestral like traveler race that settle and become hobbits in the Shire. In it, yeah. and it's very like oh can. Like you know, so like I I don't I don't want to spoil too much, but like someone breaks their leg and then they're, like there's I just will he be able to migrate? <laughs> it's just like put him in a car, you know. <laughs> Which is what it was Which traditionally is, always done. They just shoved you in the back of the the, the car and yeah yeah. But yeah yeah. So there's there's a bit of that. So there's there's a there's a full on race and and culture as the the Harfoots, and they are they are the they are the pre-Hobbit um, in it, which is kind of, like, interesting. Um, but like, because as far as I'm aware, they, they, like, Amazon don't have the right to the Silmarillion. So they, yeah. don't, they don't have any of that, so they can't build off that. They can only reference it. So this is between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. Um, I'm, I'm saying the Hobbit. I doubt the series will end and then the Hobbit will start. I'm just like it's it's between that gap. It's still the second age. The third age hasn't started yet. Um, you know, uh, like looking off IMDb, so this isn't spoilers. You've got Numenorians in it. You've got a Sildur in it. It's like a Sildur's been cast, and it's on IMDb. Um, to the point where if you're watching it via Amazon Prime, it actually has um the it has like a character fact sheet and it's got a character fact sheet about Isildur so they're not hiding it it's not like a big reveal yeah as far as I'm aware they've got the rights to the appendices for Lord of the Rings they don't have it for the Silmarillion is that is that that's correct what I, that's what I read on Twitter because that's where I get all of my stuff yeah, about yeah. the Lord of the Rings from at the minute it's Twitter. see I'm I'm, yeah. I'm a giant Lord of the Rings fan I absolutely so love I. Lord of the Rings it's just like I, there was just something weird about like Amazon being made, and to be fair, Bear McCreary has done a very good job on the music front. That's one thing I will absolutely commend them for. Um, mm-hmm. Bear McCreary's done some really good stuff on the music, and it does have that Howard Shore like you know, it's got almost, the vibe. It's got the, it's it's got got the, the vibe. Music the, um, yeah. and to like. I quite like the way that they're doing it as well. You're still jumping between different characters, which I think is quite good. I feel like if we were just following one story, um, mm-hmm. you know, it would be a wee bit more naff. But you've got you've got people in the south. You've got you've basically got pre Gondor. Uh, you've got the elves who are like basically a bunch of them are beginning to fuck off back to Valinor, um, and then you've got the the Harfoots, and I'm probably missing another one but you know you've kind of got all the components uh, and you've got the dwarves um to, to be honest i actually thought they did not a too bad job like again <laughs> spoilers um they go to they go to moria they go to casa doom mm-hmm. uh you know before the goblins fucked it and uh, it, it like it looks impressive like it looks it looks good um I'd say it definitely they took inspiration from like Peter Jackson's representation of the Lonely Mountain, um, and I, I think it, it works. Orc makeup's great, actually. That's another thing. So it's not CGI, 
which is incredible. Um, I was I expected the whole thing to be CGI, which with that, the whole yeah. fiasco of She-Hulk that's been the last couple of weeks is. I'm glad that there's not. It's not just CGI. I I feel fucking sorry for anyone on the visual effects team of like the She-Hulk and stuff like that because it is getting ripped to shit. There was one I saw where like she walked into her office and someone compared it to a GTA 5 cutscene and like it was such a good comparison though because yeah. it was like it was you know like arms arms out here and it was like walking into to her office and it was like atrocious and then obviously there's the the scene where she hulk's been twerking with megan the stallion or whatever her name is um and it's like <laughs> some poor visual effects person was kept away from their family and made to work overtime <laughs> on that piece of shit, you know? Yeah. Um, Rather than just give her a good wig and prosthetics. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, um, visual effects uh, unionise at some point. That would be wonderful. <laughs> it would be. Because um, if there's one industry that needs it, it's, it's uh, gaming, <laughs> all things gaming and uh, and visual effects. Um because it was, it's funny because um, obviously the, the writer's guild, you know, like we, you can mm-hmm. still, watching old TV series, you still see the impact that it had on all TV shows when the writer's mm-hmm. strike happened. Which I think, was that not like 2007 or something like that? Was it later? Yes. Two, so, I thought it was 2008. Yeah, Maybe 2008, but it's like, you know, you can see the ripple effect that had because that's when you got like all of the really shit episodes, like the Breaking Bad one with the fly in it. Um, yes. And you you can just tell it was like basically it was whenever a like if you if you encounter a flashback episode from one of the series that was on during that time, chances are it was a writer strike one. You think The Office America did one. Um, there was a whole I think the Supernatural was hit by it. Um, yeah, they were all hit by it pretty, pretty phenomenally, <laughs> from what I remember. Um, but yeah, it was it really showed you the amount of work that went into things. Yeah, and you know, as soon as that happened, it was everything's falling apart. And it's like, well, no, you can't just rely on shiny graphics to get you through. Well, I'm, I'm, I imagine yeah. if imagine if visual effects studios like uh, the ones that like Disney fucking hire to do all their stuff. Imagine if they went you know tools down for six months <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like tools tools down for one month it would just be it would be a disaster oh, that was actually we got destiel as direct consequence of writer's strike well, yeah no I, I actually i think i watched a video on that recently and i've never seen supernatural and i know that's like blasphemy on tumblr because everyone's seen supernatural i've also i watched maybe about 20 minutes of the doctor who with benedict cumberbatch i think that was shite as well and um i stopped watching doctor who the moment david tennant left so um you mean matt smith not benedict cumberbatch (laughs) although i see the confusion with the yeah wait what um you said benedict cumberbatch it's not he wasn't doctor who that was matt smith no did i say sorry did i say doctor who did i say sherlock i meant benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. You meant Sherlock, okay. Yes, yeah, yes. sorry. I mean, yeah, sorry. It was the worst timeline word. Yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch is in torture. I was getting ahead of myself there. No, I meant a uh, 
So yeah, I watched the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock for about 20 minutes and I stopped it. And then I stopped watching Doctor Who when Matt Smith came to be. I watched a couple of Matt Smith ones, but the moment they tried to do the the they did the Weeping Angels, which was really, really good. And like yeah. Blink was a great episode. But then you had um let's put the Weeping Angels with Matt Smith and they made it like a military thing. Yeah. And, and it was yeah, it was it was bad. It I just don't like what's his face. Um, Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat. <laughs> I actually have I actually have a story about him, but um, oh, he's no. good at one-off episodes. But as soon as he is made into the main show, we, like as soon as he's made into the showrunner, it is catastrophic. Like if you watch Stephen Moffat's Dracula, it is probably the worst reinterpretation of Dracula I have ever seen. And there's a lot of Dracula movies <laughs> that exist in TV shows. Uh, but yeah, Stephen, if we want a, a fun personal anecdote, uh, uh, my oh, no. wedding was, um, we had TARDISes everywhere because both Mothman and I were huge Doctor Who fans, both original and new. Um, so we had a lot of, you know, we had um, we had a TARDIS on top of our wedding cake. We had some other stuff as well. My bridesmaids were wearing TARDIS blue. Um, we also had other fandoms. We had um, Batman. We had Penny uh, Pratchett. We had a bunch of other stuff. It was done kind of tastefully, so it wasn't in your face. But people who knew the references were like, "Oh yeah, there's a wee thing." <laughs> but anyway, um, a couple of years later, I was working for the University of Glasgow, and um, Stephen Moffat was being awarded an honorary doctorate, and we were supposed to be we were catering that event. And uh, I was not placed with him, but my co-worker knew that I really liked Doctor Who. So she got, she was showing him all my wedding pictures on Facebook and everything else, and she got his autograph for me. And on his autograph, he wrote, you know, you know, to joy, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then his comment underneath was a very leery, what gorgeous bridesmaids. Mm. And it was just a little bit weird because some of the bridesmaids were maybe 17, 18 at the time. So it was that kind of like, why are you staring at the very obviously young bridesmaids? Like, why? It was it was just a it was a, a thing where Odd. it was, you know, it could have just been a nice little interaction where, oh yeah, I'll sign a thing for you and that's it. But it was made into a very kind of like, you know. <laughs> You're, you've, you've looked way too much at these pictures. <laughs> Yes. You've been you've taken my friend's phone at this event and you have been scrolling through the bridesmaids and pausing on them enough that you felt it was okay to say to the bride, What gorgeous bridesmaids. So it was very it was just awkward. It was very uncomfortable. Um and you could tell Damn. his wife was hungry. <laughs> Apparently. So it was one of those things where I, mean, I got handed this thing, I got handed this autograph and I was looking at my, my coworker like Thanks. That's that's. It was really thoughtful of her, but unfortunately, he ruined it by being Stephen Moffat. <laughs> <laughs> that was unfortunate. That was. It, it made me kind of like everything. I was everything he was involved with after that. I was kind of side eyeing it, mm. and I was like, "Yeah, I'm glad my gut and instinct was right because it just felt uncomfortable the whole I, time." I actually, I blame Stephen Moffat for starting like a really, really shit trend in a lot of TV shows. Um, that I can imagine, like, I think I think The Walking Dead's a really good example of it. But like Stephen Moffat, like, couldn't have any interesting things happen in the episodes between the first in the series and the finale. 
So yeah, there was like I, I'm I I don't mind the monster of the week formula. Like I I really don't mind it. I think it can be quite interesting. I think it can be particularly interesting when there's a decent arc that kind of covers the full like maybe ties all the episodes together. Mm-hmm. But bearing like, in mind, Doctor Who is preliminary for children. Yeah, for yeah. a very young audience, and Monster of the Week works very well for younger um, audiences. Yeah, I mean, like think of all the cartoons and stuff like that as well that like we watched growing up, like Scooby Doo. You know, you didn't <laughs> you didn't need the Scooby Doo arc. Um, I would totally watch a Scooby Doo arc now, though. Um, I would. <laughs> but like one of the one of the things, like like Walking Dead is the the biggest example. I mean, there is. I don't know what it is about The Walking Dead. I would I would love to get into The Walking Dead. Um, and I, I did. I watched it religiously up until about season six. And then I was like, there was always the... Like, there was, there was always the hint that it would be good at some point. There was, there was just enough that it would, like, be an interesting thing. But fuck me, it... Just never, ever performed. Never delivered on it very it well. Never it, delivered. It, it was the point where the tension would be really good, and then you have to give payoff for that tension. Yeah. And a lot of the times, the payoff was not satisfactory. Yeah, I mean, like, so, yeah. like, Walking Dead season one was good, right? Six episodes. Walking Dead season two, I don't know how many fucking episodes, but there was tons and they were on the farm for fucking ages, which is fine because there was quite a lot of things happening, but like Mm -hmm. long enough that it was like, okay, that is the Walking Dead season two done. Then it was the prison and fuck me, they could not deliver on the prison. It was like they had too many spinning plates and they did not know how to drop them. Like you have... They had the stuff that was happening in the prison. Then there was Andrea in the the town, the Woodbury town, and then the governor and all that. And then, like they just they they couldn't like they did a full season where the the jail in Woodbury like interacted, the prison in Woodbury interacted, and then they did they continued that into season four, and then. Like the thing with how that show was made, though, that it was a, it was always a a start of a season, mid season finale, mid season start, end of the season finale. So all of the major, all all of the interesting plot stuff would happen either the the first episode in the in the half season or the end, and everything else in the middle was fucking filler. Um, and it used to frustrate the shit out of me, and it's it's why I eventually stopped watching. I got to the point where Negan was in it, and then I was like, "This is just not going anywhere." I, think I even got that far. I'm trying to remember how far I watched, and it wasn't that far because it was just very repetitive. Yeah. And although re- repetition's good in some cases, it only works for certain genres. And when you have a show like The Walking Dead, which relies so much on tension, the repetition just detracts from the tension. You know, you you no longer give a shit who survives because yeah. you know there's always going to be a new character to replace them. So it's a never ending. You know, I think the walking season would have benefited from being a lot shorter. Um, yeah, like dead like human humans. I still pine for Farscape. I miss Farscape. What was Farscape? Gonna be a lot of, oh, I was going to say there's going to be a lot of young people in chat going, "What's Farscape? Farscape was um, a really I am that young person. <laughs> a really fun." space sci-fi adventure where this um, American astronaut dude 
goes through a wormhole and finds himself in a, a universe, you know, an alternate timeline with aliens and stuff, and it's this whole. Um, <laughs> I'm looking it's, up. It's fun. It's really campy sci-fi fun. I was three um, years old when that came out, Joy. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna turn to dust in a second. Um, but yeah, it's the the Farscape. If you if you like kind of the campy sci-fi stuff, and you also like things that have a fairly decent story narrative arc, Farscape's a good show. If you're looking for something cheesy to kind of binge, um, <laughs> stop actually taking psychic damage here. Um, <laughs> I'm always every time I do this podcast, I, I'm aware of my advancing age. Within a week, but... you, sorry, you 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 give me ADHD symptoms, and I remind you of aging. That's it. I don't give you symptoms; I point them out. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's the Farscape's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Farscape when I was younger, and it, to me, it still holds up. Um, I used to watch Farscape whenever I was watching Star Trek stuff, um, and it's a different; it's completely different. But I really enjoyed, you know, the the fact that the pilot of the ship is like bonded to the ship, like it's like a tentacle creature, and okay. it, it controls the ship and things like that. And there's this whole evil faction that needs to get taken down. But it also does the kind of like the the light relief filler episodes where you literally see the bad guy wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and like shorts and stuff. Like it's really, <laughs> um, yeah. There's also Muppets in it. There's like the, the animatronic style kind of aliens, which I really love as well. Um, okay. And, yeah, there's there's lots of things to recommend. I can't remember like you know all of it, but I do remember enjoying it a lot. And I, I watched it a couple of years ago, and I, to me, it still held up. So I really enjoyed it, and it was a good way of showing how you know they knew when to end that series. I think I think it maybe went on for maybe a little bit, like maybe a couple of episodes. I would have ended it sooner, but they wanted to wrap everything up. Um, Sorry, I've just yeah, read. Was- <laughs> Sorry, I was just reading Panny Corn's comment there talking about feeling old. Apparently, a live action Tangled is coming out next year. <laughs> no, 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 you can't, can't have that. We don't need it. That was actually something that um, I, I watched a video on the other day. It was um, talking about how um, the live action Mulan. Mm-hmm. Why why it doesn't work, um, and I know that there's lots of like you know commentary around that film in general, but like it's it there's like there's no growth in Mulan's character in it, um, because she doesn't start off as they're like there's no like there's no comparison to what she was like at the start, yeah, and then there's like because. Because she can batter folk from the very beginning of the film, um, like the, there's there's like obviously there's the scenes in the original where, uh, you know, she obviously goes to the the matchmaker, and you know that's a bit of a disaster, and you know like there's all this kind of like push back against her femininity, femininity, mm-hmm. and then she has to be more masculine when she goes and joins the training camp, and then it's actually her femininity that wins the wins the day, um like how she approaches like the problems when they're um, attacking the, the kind of castle in uh, I think in Beijing um, or Xi'an or whatever it is um, but like there's just none of that in the in the thing yeah femininity are you happy now are you happy that I can pronounce words am I going to get corrected every fucking stream um, but no like it is, it's interesting how like a lot of the like the live action films really do because really, I think Disney actually does have a problem with like trying to correct 
like yeah. things that have been commented on because like the the Aladdin film as well, the one that had Will Smith in it, um, like it's a uh, Jasmine and it. Unfortunate, yeah. Well, Jasmine and it wants to be Sultan, because um, you know, like gaslight gatekeep girl boss, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, which is a very modern Disney thing. Is the yeah, gaslight gatekeep, you know, and it's also the rejection of, you know, oh well. The reason people hate us is because all of our heroines only existed to be romantic interests. Therefore, we will give them badassery, and it's like you don't have to do that. You can just give them autonomy. Like it's not you don't have to eradicate, you know, things that are very you know valid and very you know. It bugs me especially when there's a lot of like in um, fantasy novels. It's like I'm not like other girls. I hate embroidery. I hate these things. I'm <laughs> going well, cool. Who's making your socks? Who's making your sails? Who's like, who's you know. Women's work has always been important work. And the fact that th- that is undermined is the problem. You don't have to be like, well, I reject these things. I'm going to do these other things. Mm. You can literally just give more credit to the skills required to do these things. No, that's very fair. Uh, Puny Humans uh, says a good point here. I wonder if there is a single live action adaptation better than the animated original. No. I, nah. <laughs> and- I literally cannot think of anything. The thing is, is that like, animation lends itself to so much more like visually striking scenes. I mean, like, like I, I would hate it if they tried to do like a Spider Man. I mean, I suppose Spider Man three, not the Tobey Maguire ones, the one that just came out, one that has home in the title. Um, yeah. Like I know that that was the like you know kind of trying to do the Into the Spider Verse thing. But, like, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man film. It is, like, I remember watching that animated film and just being amazed at the colours. There's, like, there's one specific scene in um, in the Spider-Verse where, like, the subway has been, like, spray-painted mm-hmm. and it is, like, the best-looking fucking, like, modern animation. I was like, imagine if all of the... I mean, obviously, a lot of people wouldn't want the whole of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be animated, but like imagine how much cooler all of the fucking scenes would look like, rather than like endless, like, beige and grey in like Civil War. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I mean, some of the some of the fight scenes in some of the MCU stuff look fucking atrocious, and that kind of lends itself back to the, the visual effects folk with She-Hulk. Like, the the fights in like Shang Chi and stuff. I mean, I haven't mm-hmm. seen the I've seen the fights and it's like, damn, they look they look bad. <laughs> I'm just reading all the comments, but yeah, it's that kind of. There's some things that don't need to be remade, and yeah. the reason Disney is remaking a lot of things is because they're maintaining the copyright. Yeah, that's why they're doing it. They're not doing it because it needs to be. It's not a, a fun new creative venture. It's literally just Disney maintaining their copyright, which I don't think a lot of people realise. Um, yeah. The fact Winnie the Pooh is now technically public domain. Yes. Not Winnie the Pooh. Not Winnie, Winnie the Pooh with his red jumper is still belong to Disney. So you cannot make any Winnie the Pooh <sighs> things with the red jumper, but you can make other things. Have you seen the horror film that's coming out? No. Oh my god, you've got to look this up. <laughs> it is the fucking amazing. So it's uh, I'm, it's called Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. It, oh, it's 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 a horror slasher film with Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. 
it is, this is amazing. It is, it is, it is amazing. <laughs> it is, it is going to be the fucking best thing ever. Um, I, I, I cannot wait for it. There's like, there's a trailer out. There was a, there was a trailer released four days ago. Um, it is, it is going to be incredible. It, he so he can't wear a red shirt, but he can wear a coating of blood. <laughs> <laughs> it, so it follows Pooh and Piglet as they go on a rampage after Christopher Robin abandons them for college. Is that that is the fucking best? That is the best. I feel like I, I, I hope I, I don't know what the release date actually is. Uh, we'll need to we'll need to check, but like we should totally have like a watch party or something. We should, that. we should. Like, we should watch that for our for our spooktober. I'm not sure if it's coming out this time. I'm, I'm finding out from the comments that there's a lot of um, Winnie the Pooh content I was not aware of. I wanted <laughs> to check out because I did love Winnie the Pooh. I loved the originals as a kid. So I remember I, watching the original animation and there's a bit where they're all going on a search for Christopher Robin um, and they go through like a kind of haunted forest. Um, and they all get lost and they all go like they all go in different branching paths. Scared the shit out of me as a kid. It's like I think it kind of fed into this like weird sense of claustrophobia yeah. that I have. I'm not a claustrophobic person at all. I don't know what it is, but like there was there was something about that that was claustrophobic, and it was. It was that, I fun. think that was a thing. A lot of the earlier animations did really well because I remember as a kid being absolutely terrified of a lot of the kind of the villain scenes, like mm. Snow White running through the forest was petrifying to me as a child. Yeah. Not just because I grew up in a forest town. Like, but because, like, you were like, yeah, I could totally see the fact that you'd be running through a forest. And yes, that would look like a monster, like the tree with the owl on it would look terrifying. And it's <laughs> a lot of that was done really well, and you don't mm. really get that anymore. Um, a lot of it falls into the uncanny valley level of uncomfortable, but it's not scary, which is the issue I take with it. Um, Actually, I mean, the, yeah. No, it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's like going more into like horror. Like I, I, I don't enjoy watching horror films, right? Because I find that so many modern horror films rely entirely, like entirely, on jump scares. I think we're kind of coming to the end of that now, and there's definitely a lot more horror stuff out there that relies on building tension. But like, the there was like, I'm thinking of, I'm trying to think of all the actual fucking films that I was dragged to when I was in high school, and I was trying to prove my like prove to myself uh, and the girls and the guys that I was with my friends that I could also um I could also watch a scary movie um so there was insidious was one of them and like I remember all, all of all of the shit in insidious that is horror was just jump scares and it was always like I actually think you can get visually scary characters that don't actually get the like they don't actually get their time to shine because whenever you see them it's just a jump scare and then the mm -hmm. character starts running like immediately or closes their eyes or whatever it is um i actually thought the scariest horror film i've ever seen was a 12a and it was fucking daniel radcliffe in a uh, woman in black um yes. it was like it was his first film after harry potter and everyone was like oh is it daniel radcliffe oh let's come let's go see me harry and it was the most fucking terrifying film. Um, it had a couple of jump scares in it, but it, it like, did. Tension. And I was so annoyed at the ending because the ending of that fell flat to me. But yeah. It had the makings of a really good horror setup. Yeah. Like the tension in that movie was good. 
right up until it got to the third act where I feel like they didn't know what to do anymore. Mm-hmm. But the build up to it was fabulous from a narrative standpoint. Um, also, Southern Orchid mentioning Crimson Peak. I adore Crimson Peak. I am also terrified of some of the visual effects, but I will watch Crimson Peak at least once every six months because I need that gothic horror. I need it so much. <laughs> Just inject it into my veins because it's so beautiful and so rich. And it, you know the 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 scenery and everything else really just plays into the 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 complexity of the world and also the horror. It's fantastic. Oh, um, I'll need to check that one out. I've, I've not seen. I've not seen it at all. No, no. We're gonna watch party the fucking. This is announcing it, but um, for October, Mothman and I were going to be doing a bunch of scary movies and stuff. Um, so we were also going to get you guys and. And I games involved if you wanted to. Yeah. And games possibly. Um. But we'll see. Um. That is more I and I doing horror. Yeah. Um. The Crimson Peak could definitely be on our watch list because I adore Crimson Peak. It works so well for my gothic horror. Tell you what, aspect. it's got it's got some cast to it. Oh, the cast is wonderful. I. So I know some people think it's really cringe to still like Tom Hiddleston. I still love Tom Hiddleston. I am at an age where I can appreciate Tom Hiddleston without cringe. <laughs> Tom, Tom, Tom Hiddleston only became cringe because he took part in that fucking Chinese vitamin ad um, where he, he, yeah. he, he makes he makes her breakfast and it's, <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> I mean, there's some people who really enjoyed that fantasy and that's... Really, <laughs> but it's, Again, no, it's, not kink-shaming. I'm just saying. Yeah. It was it was a <laughs> it was a very cringe uh, advert. It was you know, there are there are things, but at the same time they have bills to pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. But um it's the Crimson Peak is a fabulous I, I mean, you know, Del Toro movies are fantastic for that. Pan's Labyrinth, I almost wet myself with terror the first time I watched Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. Is that the um, eye guy? The thing with the yeah. eyes. Aye. That, to me, was terrifying. More scary than any jump scare I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, I mean, I, I was a, when I was a teenager, when I was coming into my teens, Blair Witch was a thing. And that okay. was all the rage. And I remember watching Blair Witch. And, you know, it was, it was jump scary, but I didn't have nightmares about it. I had nightmares about Pan's Labyrinth as an adult. For I still get them occasionally. I will have the thing where I get, like, flashes in my nightmares of that, the eye thing. For whatever reason, that bothered me <laughs> on a much more deeper level than the idea of being chased through the woods by a witch. Like that, just <laughs> yeah. It's the, the 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 real horror of Blue Witch was the shaky cam. That it was that yeah. was what made you know Blue Witch revolutionary was the shaky jump cam and everything else. And I think a lot of people tried to emulate that because it is a good cheap way of doing it. Yeah. But it's not it's not necessarily what you need for your story. You nah, know, it's I mean, not always the best way of doing it. And um, as so Losia eighty nine, um, they're pointing at you know the elegance of you know um, Doug. I can't remember his last name. You know he does all the he's in what we do in the shadows as well. He's the 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 Duke. He does all the elegant hands. Yeah, and yeah. The fantastical stuff. He understands the movement of horror so well. Mm. He understands that it's you know more. It's about being otherworldly and having different you know mannerisms that make you seem abnormal. But also at the same time, it's very elegant, which makes it more unsettling. So it's that, um, yeah, Doug Jones. Um, but it's, yeah, there's so much, there's so many good things that make horror work. And then there's so many other things that don't. And I think jump scares mm. have had their time. 
hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Like one of the, one of the things I'm finding um, has definitely moved into uh, gaming horror. Um, that is, I'm is a wee bit tired, but like I feel like psychological horror in games is now is is wearing a bit thin just because of the amount yeah. of stuff that's being pushed out about it. It's now like because you can do kind of wacky things with physics in games you can have like you know you you're walking down a corridor and then the door's locked and you turn around and then like the the hall has changed and stuff and it's i just think it's in a game it's it's wearing really thin like there's a lot of like same with like the glitchy vision glitchy hud i think like that's becoming quite i'm not sure if it's just uh we're getting used to it and it's more the exposure to that has now made it less terrifying but i don't remember being like particularly scared by like layers of fear or anything like that there's that one hilarious bit in layers of fear where like a child runs and smacks its head on like a cupboard and like falls back and then it glitches and and disappears um but that's more funny than anything um i don't know maybe maybe i'm not as scared anymore if anything maybe maybe i've just like surpassed what i'm i'm, I'm only scared of heights now um, Everyone should go and watch Eyes Mortuary Assistant streams that he did. Don't know what you're talking about. Nah, those <laughs> those didn't way. happen. Yeah, no. Again, but again, that's jump scares. That's that's it jump, is scares. jump scares. But I think that that's it's well done in that game. Yeah, it's to it Mortuary Assistant. adequately. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely fair. I think there's also the the good thing about Mortuary Assistant actually is that it there's there is so much happening as well. Like, if it was just one monster, it would maybe wear a wee bit thin, but it's the fact that, like, you can turn around and you can see, like, the mimic, or you can mm-hmm. see the woman in white, or you can see the, was it the shadow man, and you can see all of them, like, it's, it's, quite, it's quite good like that, because there's the variety, and then, of course, there's, like, <laughs> there's there's a bit where your granny's at the window just knocking. <laughs> that was so unsettling when I was watching. That. Yeah, yeah. And then like of course she saw she's like, Let me in, or you're not gonna open the window for your granny. And then But you <laughs> love me, dear. Don't you love me? <laughs> you don't you love me? Let me in, you little bitch. <laughs> so, like the, the voice kind of cuts to it. Um But like, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think a game like that's good because it it builds tension to the point where you should be scared in the scenes where you're not actually under any real threat. The, the skill like, is making you afraid just by building out the tension. Yeah. It's literally that the skill lies in making you create the horror yourself. And yeah. a lot of people fail at that. Um, and it's, you know, there's times when I will absolutely work myself up into a terror. Like I was playing a really old Might and Magic game over the weekend. And I forgot how scary it was. The Thief games were not necessarily horror games, but when they did horror levels, they were spectacular. Mm. And then you get to Thief 4 and you do the horror level and it, it's not scary compared to... I mean, it's scary, but it's more ableist than scary, whereas the other ones, it was, the horror levels were terrifying because it was so wild and so different from what you were... You know, you'd been... Playing a, a, a stealth game for yeah. the last couple of hours, and then all of a sudden it's horror survival, and you're like, "Holy shit, this is not good. This is like it's," a, and you're suddenly you abandon stealth because the only thing you can do is run for your life, 
And yeah, that, that's to me, cool. works really well. Um, and Thief 1, Thief 2, Thief 3. Thief 3 scared the bejesus out of me because it, it was in the same vein as the Weeping Angels. Like, you turn around and the, the statues that were chased, you know, you wouldn't realise you were being chased at first. But then mm. all of a sudden you'd realise that the statues were moving. And if you turned around, it would suddenly you'd look around and the statue would be there grasping you and your thief character's like, fuck this. And it's, just, <laughs> you know, it's a game that you're used to being slow with. It's a game that you crawl through and you're very slow and very careful. And all of a sudden you are required to abandon that and run. That to me is genius. That to me works really well. <laughs> Um, Sorry, this is a really good point yeah. from Pixelated Skies in chat. One of the scariest things that happened in my Watch the Assistant playthrough was a glitch, right? Because I didn't know whether it was a, a glitch or whether it was deliberate in game. Yeah. And it was when uh, I couldn't pull the march, like the, the cart, the gurney. I couldn't pull the gurney at all. Um, and it stopped and I, I like I ran outside and I ran all the way around to try and get to the other side of the gurney and see if that was the problem and then I ran back and then the game like fixed itself but it was like unbelievably creepy and I think you know one of the points you were saying there is like it's about the horror you kind of create for yourself I think particularly with horror games if if the horror game successfully manages to like alter your behaviour to the point where you're like nervous about doing the most basic of fucking tasks. Like I was always expecting something to be slightly different whenever I started the game and I was in like the room in the flat before you go to the, like the morgue. Like I was expecting there to be something there. I was expecting there to be like something a wee bit different you're, each time. You're building the horror yourself. Yeah. You're building the anticipation yourself, which is the sign of a good built game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we're, there's we're a game, I, an older game. I don't remember the name of, but you know, it was one of the first ones that played with you know. Oh, it pretended to wipe your saves. It pretended to turn it. I can't remember the name of it. It's annoying me so much. But yeah. Mothman played it a lot. But it made it. You know, it looked as if you know your saves had been wiped and you had to start over again. Just mm. kidding. That was part of the nightmare. You know, it was yeah. that kind of play, playing with unreality to a degree that had never been seen before. And now I feel like a lot of things do that as rote. So yeah. It's it's interesting how it evolves. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's... I think... Eternal darkness, yes. Thank you, Judge Magistrate Ember. <laughs> this, is, this is why I really like indie games, because I think in the same way that we were talking about publishing and stuff, I love how all of our conversations are cyclical. It's great. Um, but, like, we were talking about how, like, a lot of traditional publishing houses almost, like, smooth out all of the content. Like, it's why indie game development's so interesting. Like, so many good... Like, obviously, you've got, like, massive games this year, like Elden Ring, that have come out. And they really have blown blown people away. But, like, you have some incredible indie stuff coming that could only really be made by an indie one. Because I feel like if they were made by a studio that was, you know, mid-sized or bigger, it would be, like, so sanitized that you wouldn't get that. As well as, like... You know, you could have a mortuary assistant that had flawless graphics and ray tracing and it probably wouldn't be scary. Like, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be as scary. Um, I feel like there's something quite powerful about having, like, you know, and there's a good one, Fall Into Life Hades, AAA companies would never. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, there's, like, there's so much that indie studios can do with being small enough that they can adapt quite quickly. You can create really tense situations in in like horror um but yeah yeah 
Um, right, well, I mean, to be honest, I actually think we can safely wrap up there because we're going to spend a wee bit, 10 minutes at the end with the people who are actually um, in the stream with us. Um, but we will wrap up the Ice Sphere episode 13 right there. We're not done on the stream side of things, but we'll uh, we'll call an end to it. Uh, this is your incentive to come chat with us. Th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you are yeah. listening to this, this is your incentive to come hang out. Yeah, the you, chat <laughs> you get bonus, <laughs> you get bonus content if you watch us live. Um, but yeah, for now, uh, I'll drop uh, links to the YouTube where this will be archived. Um, we also now have a Twitter and a Tumblr, and we'd love to see you in there as well. Um, particularly because as we grow this and get more involved on the um, interactive side, there might be questions and topics that. You can send to us on a uh, Tumblr or whatever, um, and we can uh, we can go on and, and do a wee bit more. But for now, um, well, it's probably a goodbye from me and Joy on uh, the Ice Sphere front, and we can now go back to our wonderful streaming um, and chat to a Thanks bunch of listening. you in chat.